Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about active participation in the Mass. And when I first heard this, I thought it meant that I had to be actively involved in the liturgy, like a lector or a cantor or something like that. Uh, it turns out it's way deeper than that. So without further ado, episode 14 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, gentlemen. I have a query. This is about something that I heard. It's called active participation. The more I'm learning about liturgy, the more I'm hearing about this. And there is this idea that active participation means that uh, you are actually doing something physically, actually doing something in the liturgy. You are an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, or you are a lector, or anything like that, and that is the only way to be actively participating in the Mass, but am I to understand that that's not actually entirely true? That is not entirely true. You can certainly have external participation in the Mass, and that's kind of a minimum. You know, if you're going to participate in the life of your family, you should show up for dinner and you should talk to them, but that's not the same as loving them deeply from the depths of your heart and being transformed right. by That's like experience. saying I would coexist with you. That's just yeah, the bare minimum. I'm going through the external <laughs> motions of external participation, mm-hmm. which was important. You know, before the council in a low mass, many people wouldn't say anything. You know, the priest would speak sotto voce. They couldn't hear what he was saying, and so they would sit there and do something else. So active participation in the externals of the rite was very important, and it still is to this day, but that's not all there is. So where, where do we get this term active participation? Where did it originate from? It originated with Lambert Baudouin, I think. Um, who was but it, who it, was, it was a liturgical movement figure in Belgium in uh, the turn of the, well, in the 1900s. Uh, I believe he may have been the first to use it, but the first to use it in, uh, on behalf of the church was uh, Pope St. Pius X in uh, this document on sacred music called Trale Solicitudini, which I think we've mentioned before. God bless you. That's yes, my that's joke for what that. you said before. <laughs> Perfect password Words. for all of your accounts. No one can spell it. Hey, even now you. we have to change all of our passwords. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't try to log into my account. You'll know. <laughs> but he says that, uh, the, and I paraphrase here again, of the, course. the indispensable source or font of the true Christian spirit is the active participation of the people in the, in the sacred liturgy. So that they were, people were not called, the baptized were not called to be a passive participants uh, at the liturgy, but active participants, fully engaged as much as possible in liturgical action. Right, and how many times have we said it, you know, signs and symbols, uh, the, the graces of God are mediated through signs and symbols, and these are music, words, visual things, uh, gestures, actions. And so if you're going to participate in the grace that those things mediate, well, then you have to participate in those things. You just can't sit there like a rock and uh, hope that they somehow penetrate into your mind and heart and actually do what you're supposed to do. So this isn't necessarily indicative of, of an action. It can be, but it doesn't mean that my I have to physically be moving to be active. I mean, that's what our culture thinks today. Yeah. Like, are you an active person? That means, like, do you exercise regularly? You know, things like that. Yeah, that, no, that's not the case at all. In fact, um, 
you know, if you uh, many if you if you are a liturgical minister, let's say, um, sometimes that can I don't want to say it's a distraction, but sometimes it can be just that. You know, let's say you uh, uh, you're the master of ceremonies for the bishop, right? I mean, there's nobody who is more visibly uh, engaged than the master of ceremonies. He has to know everything, what the bishop's going to do, the celebrants are going to do, the deacons are going to do, the readers are going to do, the cantors are going to do, when to, when to take off the miter, when, when to use the crozier, when to move the book, uh, everything. There's so much that a master of ceremonies needs to do. He's so visibly engaged in the liturgical action, but that may come at an expense. So he's probably not listening, say, to the bishop's homily. He's, uh, he's probably going through in his head, all right, after the homily, I have to get this chair over here. I need the book and the vimps over here. And so it can be a distraction. Or if you, uh, uh, if you have to sing the psalm, sometimes at the parish I sing the psalm, and sometimes I'm not uh, well enough prepared to, to sing it. So I confess that even during the first reading or during the opening prayer, I'm still kind of singing the, the psalm refrain. I'm not listening to the prayer, and I'm not listening to the reading. Uh, and so being a minister, doing the psalm, for example, being the psalmist, uh, in this case, is not being actively uh, engaged in the liturgy. It's distracting me from true, authentic participation as Pius X meant it. Right. So there's always this balance between interior ex- and exterior participation. So exterior participation theoretically should lead you to interior participation. But you can imagine after receiving the Eucharist, you might be kneeling silently, not saying a thing. And you have this deep contemplative action of uniting yourself to God. Wouldn't look to most people like you're doing much, but that is the real participation because the logic that came out of the liturgical reform movement was that Christ was the primary actor of the liturgy. He offered himself to the Father and he receives himself back glorified. But the reason that matters for us is that as members of his mystical body, what happens to him happens to us. We go through his passion, death, and resurrection, and glorification. And so if we just sort of sit back and say, well, I'm going to count the money after the collection. I'm not really care about that glorification business. Well, you're not actually forming the proper disposition to receive the graces that you ought to. On the same token, if you never kneel, stand, sit, uh, sing, say the words you're supposed to say, then you're not actually doing the actual doing of the process of your own sanctification. So interior, always primary, always first. It's mystical union with God through contemplation, and then the external things are supposed to aid that and bring it not only from your mind and your heart, but to the body as well, since we're body and soul. Yeah, now, Pius X, in 1903, when he used this term, active participation, he himself became oh, kind of the, the center in his motto, which was to restore all things in Christ, of the liturgical movement. Uh, active participation in restoring all things uh, in Christ was what the liturgical movement really uh, took up. Um, And eventually when we get to uh, the Second Vatican Council, uh, they took this term 60 years exactly, uh, uh, almost to the day, and made it kind of the the center of the the liturgy's reform and restoration. It says uh, in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy that in the restoration and promotion of the Sacred Liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. So whatever changes resulted uh, following the Second Vatican Council, their aim was or was to be uh, yours and my active participation in the Paschal Sacrifice of Jesus as a member of the mystical body of Christ. That didn't happen, though, necessarily. Yeah, I think maybe right? some yeah. people were thinking something different. Yeah, Cardinal Ratzinger speaks of this very point in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He says, uh, what does this active participation come down to? What does it mean that we have to do? 
Unfortunately, the word was very quickly misunderstood to mean something external, entailing a need for general activity, as if as many people as possible, as often as possible, should be visibly engaged in action. Okay? That is, in other words, what do you say? That is not what Pius X, that is not what the Second Vatican Council Otherwise, meant. everybody would be in the procession. Well, and yeah. in some places that seems almost mm-hmm. to, be, uh, to be the case. If you go back to Pius X, uh, you might know he is the patron saint of music. No, and Eucharistic adoration. Eucharist. Y- y- yes, because a couple of things that Pius X did was he uh, lowered the age of first uh, communion uh, to about the age of uh, reasons, so children could have quicker access to uh, to the Eucharist, and also he uh, promoted more frequent reception of. Communion. This was at a time of, of Jansenism and a real rigor that kept people from receiving this divine medicine, which we Can all needed. Can you get Jansenism? Can you? Can, what, I, is, what is that? A, what is Jansenism? Yeah. Uh, I, it was a, it was a doctrine that taught that you quite simply were not uh, worthy to be receiving Holy Communion. Right. Certain God, branches should, of Calvinism crept should, into yeah, Catholicism. Stay away from it. Stay away from it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at a certain level, it's right. We're not yeah. worthy. That's what right. we say before we receive Communion. Yeah, like but Wayne's World. We're not worthy. <laughs> but, you know, it's when you're sick that you go to the doctor. It's when you're cold that you go closer to the fire. I mean, we're not worthy. That's why we need the Eucharist to come and to, mm-hmm. uh, to make us whole. But I mean, if you want to get an idea what Pius X meant by active participation, I think you can look to these things. The worthy reception of the Eucharist is, in many ways, the pinnacle of active participation. It doesn't have anything to do with being a reader or a greeter or an usher or on the parish council or being a diocesan liturgy director or anything like that. Yeah, those could be extensions of the transformation that comes from liturgical participation. Yeah, but that is the when Pius... Uh, Benedict uh, says that this word was misunderstood to mean these external things. That is not the mind of, uh, of, of the church. I feel like people listening to this are going to say, great, now I shouldn't be a lector anymore. <laughs> no, you should. You know what the church says is that people should, all the members of the mystical body hierarchically arranged should do what is proper to them mm-hmm. and only what is proper to them. So it's not a requirement that the average person has to be a lector, a lector or a, an extraordinary minister. They may, um, but they don't have to. This reminds me a lot of uh, what Christ was saying about the two people who were uh, uh, fasting and giving alms. And you had the one guy who was, you know, making himself look disheveled and everybody knew he was fast. Everybody knew that. And then you had the other person who was quietly doing it to themselves and and praying um, quietly that, you know, it wasn't this big presentation. It was that internal uh, prayer that was Christ was saying was was a greater prayer and was of more importance and that kind of reminds me of what we're talking about here. Yeah, very possibly. It's like Dennis said before. This internal and external participation should be going together. I mean, uh, we're we're uh, we're souls and bodies. Uh, we're not angels. Uh, they they should both be uh, elements of true and authentic and full and conscious uh, participation. Both of those things. It's true though. You you can be a minister and. Uh, you know, I know I, I've done a reading before at Mass, and I've said the word of the Lord, and if you ask me what I just read, well, 
I wasn't really quite sure. I was not internally engaged. Don't worry, I wasn't listening <laughs> to you either, Chris. <laughs> You're not even listening right. to me now, Jesse. <laughs> but you know, there are some other adjectives that are almost always used together in relation to the word active participation, and it's full, conscious, active, and fruitful participation. So active is one of the things you do, but full meaning do everything you're supposed to do, where it says people respond, people respond, where it says sing, you sing. But conscious is probably the thing we've forgotten most, which is know what you're doing, intellectually form your mind, heart, and will that the grace that you're receiving be given, that you're giving yourself over to God, and then those fruits will then um, be the result. In the general instruction of the Roman Missal, right, so this is uh, current legislation now, it talks about uh, the liturgical celebration arranged in such a way that it leads to a conscious, active, and full participation of the faithful, and listen how it describes it, namely in body and in mind, a participation fervent with faith, hope, and charity of the sort which is desired by the church and is required by the very nature of the celebration and to which the Christian people have a right and duty, uh, a duty and virtue of their baptism. So we're called to uh, actively participate. You know, as a, as a corrective, so I read this, uh, this uh, passage from Pope Benedict before. He said, this word was very quickly misunderstood to mean as many people as possible, as often as possible, visibly engaged in some kind of action. Well, he claims this is a misunderstanding. Well, what does he offer then by way of a correction, a correct understanding? What he says is, if you want to understand the true nature of active participation, you have to understand the type of activity in which you're participating. And if you don't understand what that is, you cannot be a successful, fruitful, conscious participant. You know, If I want to be an active participant on the baseball team, but I don't know what baseball is for, I don't know what its rules are, I don't know what its objectives are, anything like that, I'm going to get benched because I don't know how to participate. You know, if I'm called to be an active participant uh, in the workplace, but I don't know what the industry is, I don't know what its strategies are, I don't know any of these things, I'm going to get fired, right? So in the, this type of activity, which is the liturgy as well, similarly, we need to know the type of activity it is so that we can do it, engage in it successfully. Right, and Vatican II gives a nice definition of the liturgy as the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. Which I don't know that most people would say, well, oh, liturgy, what is that? You know, we've talked about the work um, being done, the work for or on behalf of the people, but fundamentally that work is being done in heaven by Christ uh, at the right hand of the Father, pleading for us and offering himself for us, uh, but also with us because we're members of that body. So when Christ enters the true tabernacle in heaven, he takes us with us and he offers himself internally as a victim. Remember Pius XII, right before the council, uh, said that active, his you know, informal definition of active participation was offering yourself as a victim on the patent with the priest, which sounds kind of creepy, right? I don't want to go to church to be a victim, but in Christian thinking, the victim is the one who gives himself over and gets himself back better. We talked about this yeah, we, a while one, back. In one of the very first podcasts we were talking, because I, I, I had mentioned that you know, my sacrifice at the mass, the the priest says, your sacrifice and mine. And, I, you know, I was talking about how I don't feel like I'm sacrificing anything, but this is precisely what you're talking about. Right, because Christ is in heaven offering himself to the Father eternally. It's not just a one-shot deal on the cross uh, on Calvary, but it's this eternal offering of the self, the eternal pleading on our behalf. And you can sort of say, ho-hum, somebody's pleading for me, but I don't care. Or you can say, yes, I want what he's offering. I offer myself too. I allow myself to be glorified as well. And how does that happen? Well, the different 
parts of the Mass uh, have different uh, aspects of that. So specifically the Eucharistic prayer, you have that. But, you know, there's all kinds of mentions of glorification and the surrender and the knowledge of what you ought to be. That's the internal participation, mind, heart, will, and intelligence. If you don't know what you're doing, you can't do it consciously. If you do it half-heartedly, you're not doing it fully. And if you're not actively doing what the right asks, then you're not doing it in an active way. And therefore, it won't be fruitful. And so people don't get all the benefit that they can. Yeah, this offering of the Eucharistic prayer really, uh, I think, is the high point of the active participation in uh, in the Mass. It's related to the reception of Holy Communion, right? Because the communion from that altar is, uh, the altar is the source. But again, if I can just read from the general instruction about, you know, what, what it's telling us what the church has in mind for you to be an active participant. It says to participate in, in the offering during the Eucharistic prayer, which is spoken or chanted by the priest, but in which all should join as the church to offer the unblemished sacrificial victim and the Holy Spirit to the Father and offer their very selves. And so day by day be brought through the mediation of Christ into unity with God and with each other so that God may at last be all in all. So learning to offer your very self along with Christ on the altar is the zenith of active participation. I mean, it's, uh, it's so much more than doing the first reading or being the psalmist or being an usher, as important as those things are. Uh, to be in uh, an active participant in the nave, in the pew, wherever you are, joining your heart with that of Christ to God the Father um, is, is, is the high point. So that's what's going on you know, behind the scenes. That's the type of action Jesus is offering to God the Father. We are called to join in that. Uh, I may have mentioned this one before. Okay, so how do you do that? Right. I, was, I mean, <laughs> practically speaking, it's one thing to know that, but then how, how can you know, the person in the pew, like myself, do that? Yeah, I think when we did talk about this before, I'm going to give the same answer now. Uh, I've used this image before. You know that, that picture of Uncle Sam where he's saying, I want you? Mm-hmm. you know, to think of that, I mean, the one thing that God wants from you you know, he can take your health, your family, your job, your car, your house, your mind, everything. He can take anything from you. Okay? But there's one thing that he cannot take from you. There's one thing he cannot get unless you freely give it to him, which is your love, your will. That's the one thing that this all-powerful God is powerless to take against your will, and that's your will. So what is the one thing you want to join with Offering on the altar is your handing over your entire will. Putting maybe like Pius the the Twelfth said, putting that on the altar and offering up to God. Now, and if you want something even more specific, uh, what I have found and what I try to teach the kids is this morning offering about, uh, oh Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and sufferings of this day in union with this holy sacrifice of the Mass offered throughout the world. So during the offertory, the bringing up of the gifts, I mean, go through your own mind. Do it with your, your kid right next to you. Do this as a family as you drive to church. What are the things you're, you're praying for, you're joyful for, your, your, your sufferings, all of those things, so that when that point in the Mass comes, you know, you're putting those up onto the altar. These are the, this, is, this is how we can learn to actively participate uh, with the offering of Christ in this priestly act. Right, there's a whole nice logical sequence of things that many of the liturgical reformers of the 20th century understood. The entire power of Christ given to the church to administer. So the mystical body uh, operates through the church. The church guards all these sacraments, the graces that are available through them, makes them available through the seven sacraments, and then sets up a system by which people can receive what they're supposed to receive. 
And what this is, is an entering into the dialogue of the love of the person of the Trinity. The Father is hearing the pleading of the Son. Well, we can't so much approach the Father directly as through the mediatorship of the Son as the head, and that's how the glorification happens. So there's a you know, very famous line in Sacrosanctum Concilium that says, um, Mother Church desires that all the faithful participate in this full conscious and active participation, which is the aim to be considered before all else. So why would it be most important to participate in liturgy before anything else? It's because this is the source of supernatural life. And if you don't do it fully, then you're not getting as much as you should. If you don't do it consciously, then it's going to sort of bounce off of you. And if you don't do it in a way that's proper, then you have a lesser participation. This is the means for being filled with Christ's life, to be, get yourself back glorified. Nothing's more important than that in the life of the church, in the life of uh, any individual. And I, I, I absolutely agree with all of that, obviously. Um, it's just that, you know, through this podcast, it's been really great to have these conversations because obviously I've been learning a lot about, about this. And I think it's important uh, to have something like this and what we're doing and talking about this because the more you know, the more conscious you can be, the more fruitful that participation can be and the more full that participation can be, just like, just like we're asked to do. And I think it, it just kind of goes to show that it's, it's up to each and every one of us to sit down and, and learn more, like, continue, like continuing ed, you know, like you're baptized and confirmed, but it's also important to continue to learn and continue to grow because, um, you know, we, we have that foretaste. And I've found that the more I learn about liturgy and the more I learned, like last week we talked about mystagogy, um, the more hungry I am to have you know, more knowledge, more con, more a full of, of more fullness in the Eucharist at Mass. Yeah. There are some other ways to participate, too, uh, that we might mention here. Dennis talked about how there's this logical order to our participation, and I, uh, I think I see it in this way. You know, we talked about offering ourselves on the altar, um, but another way, too, is in the Liturgy of the Word. How would you actively participate in the Liturgy of the Word? And... Uh, What's very, very much promoted today is this practice of uh, Lexio Divina, where it's a prayerful reading of the sacred scriptures where uh, you read slowly the text, you meditate upon it, try to find out what God is trying to say to you in that text. You pray to God in response for what he's revealed to you in the text, and then you, you sit and contemplate uh, what you might do. Now, imagine if you did a Lexio Divina on the gospel for the Sunday coming up. Either you individually, or amazing. Parents, you with your, as a father of a family did this collectively, and then you get to that Sunday Mass and you're hearing a passage that you've been reading and praying over for the last week, the last day, the last couple of days. Now all of a sudden, this Word of God that's coming to us uh, can really have a, a transformative effect on it. We can. Um, uh, Pope Benedict cites Gregory the Great about the divine word grows together with the one who hears them. The divine word grows together with the one who hears them. And so the, here's this divine word, who is the word, coming to you, and you are ready to listen to it, and you're going to be transformed by your participation in it. And now maybe one other thing, and I'll mention why I, why I want to conclude with this, is that even at the end of Mass, right, one of the things that changed with the uh, with the Missal some five years ago were the dismissal formulas. So all of them begin now in English with go. Go the Mass is ended. Go glorify the Lord by your life. Go and announce the gospel of the Lord. Go in peace. Uh, 
in Latin, this is ite, ite, and it's a, um, what do you call it? An imperative. imperative yeah. It's a command to yeah. get out, to get out. And uh, so it's not an invitation to go. It's this command to go out and out the door and to transform the world. And, in, and the, this was changed for our participation so that we could hear that and go out and participate in the saving work of Christ out in the world. Now, these three elements, the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist, and the dismissal, one has to do, in a certain sense, with knowledge, the Eucharist, in a certain sense, with love, and the dismissal, the ite, with going out and serving uh, along with Christ. And why is it, Jesse, that God made you? But to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this life so you could be happy with him forever in the next. So if we're prepared to come to the Mass, for example, as you were saying before, it does take effort. It takes ongoing learning. Mm-hmm. It takes, you know, the root of liturgy is ergon, which is work. It takes work. But if we do go and we're ready to participate in the Word, in the Eucharist, in the dismissal, we are being reformed in just the way God made us, to know, love, and serve Him. And if we're transformed into the image of Christ, we're going to be Christ for others. Everyone who talks about social justice, care for the poor, care for the sick, avoiding war, uh, peace among nations, begins at the altar. We can't operate as glorified people without the source of that glorification, which is the grace of the sacraments, and we can't receive them fully unless we participate full conscious, active, and fully, fruitfully. Participate on. And I would, I would say that, um, Chris, you were talking about one way to actively participate in the liturgy of the word is to go through and read the gospel of the day and maybe pray with it and and um, kind of just listen and meditate on it. There's a great podcast out there called The Lanky Guys, and it's uh, two, two guys, one's a priest and one is a scripture scholar, and they actually break open the scripture for the upcoming uh, Sunday Mass every Thursday. And so you can listen to that and learn about not only what the readings are, but what they mean. So that's a really great podcast. And you guys are the answerers of email questions about the liturgy. So let's go, let's go do another one of those. May it be fruitful. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, gentlemen, we have a question this week from Karen. Karen says, is water the only beverage allowed in the one-hour fast before Eucharist, or are beverages such as coffee and tea permitted as well? Well, straightforward, Canon 919 of Canon Law says, a person who is to receive the Most Holy Eucharist is to abstain for at least one hour before Holy Communion from any food and drink except for only water and medicine. So, water and medicine. That's it. So, tea is not water. Tea is tea. Coffee is not water. Coffee Coffee is is coffee. coffee. Some might argue that coffee is medicine. Um, But... Who would do that? I don't know. I saw that on some discussion board. What if I'm addicted to caffeine, then coffee becomes medicinal? Or what if I can't stay awake for mass, uh, then it's medicinal? That's, you know, these are always exceptions to the, the norm, but the norm is water and medicine. That's it. And it's said in the, in the canon too, Dennis, this is before mass or before the reception of communion? Before reception of communion. I know some people who will follow that hour before mass instead of before the reception of communion. And so it's really a pretty minimal discipline on us. And it didn't used to be an hour. It used to be mid- midnight, right? It used to be for midnight, yeah. And I think, 
Really, that was the reason why there was one of the reasons, one of the key reasons why there was never a, a mass in the evening. Like now you can go to mass, uh, a mass of anticipation, say, in the evening. Well, it, that just didn't do if you had to be fasting from midnight before. That, is, that is a long fast. Long fast. Whoa. Now, there are, other, there are some other exceptions, too, to this communion fast, namely for the sick. Right. The elderly, the infirm, and those who care from, for them can receive uh, even less than an hour. So can you give an example of that? Well, if you were uh, in a hospital, uh, uh, hospital room, either as, as a patient or as a family member, and the communion priest or commun- extraordinary minister of Holy Communion came by to offer communion, I think what it, w- what it says in the rites for uh, visiting the sick is that at least a quarter hour, if possible, should be, uh, sh- should be allowed. But yeah, that would be a good example of uh, the communion minister comes when they can, when they're doing their rounds. You don't know exactly when that might happen, so it's hard to prepare for with the hour-long fast. And the basic logic of the fast is you're supposed to prepare your heart. You're supposed to have a little bit of hunger, maybe even a little bit of thirst. That signifies your desire for the the sacramental bread and the sacramental drink of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about the law itself. So there are all these exceptions for the health and the well-being of any particular individual. It also says in canon law that if a priest has to celebrate Mass two or three times, uh, in a row, every hour, for instance, that they can take food or drink in between the second or third mass because they need it to sustain their strength. So it's not just about the legalism. It's about maintaining the, um, the thirst and hunger for the Eucharistic Lord. Right. And in that, in that vein, you wouldn't, like, let's say you're going to a, a noon mass, but you obviously need to have breakfast. You wouldn't, like, have a huge buffet, you know, just slightly one hour before you go, you go to church. I mean, the idea is making sure that you're prepared. Right. It's a conceptual principle idea. How can I maintain my consciousness of desire and hunger and thirst for the glorified body of the Lord? I could not have said it better than, better than you just said, or better myself. All right. Uh, if you have any questions for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.